Well, Lord, our God, we praise you for your word. We acknowledge that your word has power. It is glorious because it reflects who you are. And we ask now that you would teach us from your word, that you would encourage us, that we would not be dull of hearing, and your spirit would apply these truths to our life. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A wise person, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, seeks out advice when they need it. An unwise person thinks that they know everything. Most of us at one time or another have been one or the other. I once read about a couple who knew nothing about real estate, but they wanted to get into the business. They owned a house, but they wanted to begin purchasing houses. But they really knew nothing about how to do that. When you go to buy your own house, you basically go to a bank. If you need the money, beg for the money. You buy that one house, and then you take care of it. To be a landlord is a completely different different field. They really didn't know anything. So they went to someone who knew a lot more than them. Someone who had been purchasing properties and selling them for a great many years. But the advice that this man gave them didn't seem to resonate with them. For some reason, they thought that they knew more than he did, even though they had gone to him for advice in the first place. So what did they do? They didn't take his advice. They didn't listen to his words. And they did quite the opposite of what he had told them to do. You can figure out how this story is going to end. It's not going to end very well. Disaster ensues. They didn't know what they were doing. They invested in a bunch of properties that uh, didn't work out very well, and that's always, always a risk in any venture. But this man had given them good, solid, conservative advice. He had advised them to start slow, to invest in properties in an area that they knew, instead of going off to the four different winds, which is what they did, purchasing properties out of state and things like that. Disaster ensued, and they regretted their decision for many, many years. The man was an expert, and they sought his expert advice. He gave them the expert word, and they didn't listen to what he said. The moral of the story is, they should have taken his advice. We all do that, too. Hopefully, if when we're in school, if we don't understand something, we ask the teacher That's what the teacher's getting paid for. The teacher's getting paid to teach us. If I say something in the sermon, you don't quite understand it. That's that's one of the reasons I'm here. Call me up and ask me. If your car is broken and you know nothing about cars, you listen to the mechanic. We listen to the advice of doctors. But how few of us actually listen to what God has to say to us? It's a great tragedy. Let me ask you something, a totally rhetorical question. Is there any aspect of knowledge, wisdom, or understanding that the Lord our God isn't absolutely expert in? Is there anything he doesn't know? He knows everything. Nothing is beyond his reach because he's created everything. So why don't we listen to him? When he says, thou shalt not steal, why do we not put in eight hours on the job? Because stealing. If you get paid for eight hours and you work seven, you know, stealing. 
may only be 20, 25 bucks or whatever you get paid an hour, but it's still stealing. A lot of commands in the Bible. They don't all start with thou shalt not, but you can read them there. Just in Sunday school today, we were talking from the book of James. The Lord, through James, commands us to have no bitter envy or selfish ambition in our lives. How many of us have fallen prey to bitter envy and selfish ambition? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. James chapter 3 talks about the the tongue being uh, unruly, almost untamable, set on fire of hell. And he cautions us to be a few words. Has any of us not stumbled with what we have said at one time or another? James says, if any man can tame his tongue, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Mm. A lot of us can discipline ourselves in many regards, but when it comes to our words, we fail to heed the word of the Lord. Peter is pointing out here in this text that the word does magnificent things. We understand, academically or intellectually, that the Lord's word is powerful. We understand that. But what this text is actually getting at is that the Lord does great things through his word. It's not just the word, but the actions that the Lord does through his word are absolutely magnificent. In the beginning, the scriptures tell us. That's how they start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did God create the earth? How did he create the universe? There was a time when there was nothing, no space, no time, just God. Perfectly happy and content didn't have to do anything else. He chose, for reasons we don't know, to sovereignly create the universe. And the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light. He created through the Word. Now we know from our New Testament, the Word of God is literally Jesus Christ. Hmm? We know that. We know that especially from Colossians with regard to creation. The Father created the universe through Jesus Christ, His Son. Let's think about Jesus for a bit. He said a lot of powerful things. Hmm? Think about the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Is meekness something that our world really values to be humble? Or are we taught to push ourselves to the front, to, to publicize ourselves, to treat ourselves as if we are some kind of marketing project? Churches are even doing that now. Marketing plans and strategies for, for gaining adherence. We're not commanded to do any of those things. We're commanded to be meek and humble. How hard is it to be meek and humble? How hard is it to teach our children to be meek and humble? It's very difficult. If it was easy, there would be more meek and humble persons around. When we come across someone who is genuinely meek and humble, we are impressed with them. And as I've told you before, being meek and humble isn't being a doormat. It's knowing who you are. It's having your talents and your powers under control. And that's a powerful testimony in a world filled with posers. In a world filled with empty suits. Men and women who appear to be one thing in reality are another. Or they're trying very hard to be something that God doesn't want them to be. That's an even greater tragedy in some respects. Trying to be a round peg in a square hole. I think that's the, that's the phrase. 
Peter understood a little bit about not listening to the word of God. (laughs) He understood all too well about not listening. And he also understood about listening to the word of God. Because when we read the book of Acts, Peter's entire character is transformed. Beautiful, powerful testimonies that the gospel is true is the fact that these wimpy, scared apostles are transformed after they see the Lord to the point where they have no problem telling the high priests, you know what, you crucified him. You shouldn't have done that. Whereas just a few weeks before, they were cowering in fear behind locked doors. What does Peter tell us? And remember, Peter is talking to persecuted believers here. Believers who were somewhat young in their faith. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. It's a simple thing to understand. These people were cooperating with their sanctification. We certainly know that we cannot purify our souls. That's not Christian religion. We need someone else to purify our souls. That's what the water of baptism represents, is the purification of the entire person, but primarily the purification of the soul, the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. There's a reason why baptism replaces circumcision. Circumcision is it's ugly, it's painful, and only men can receive it. In the New Covenant, it's so much more glorious. That wasn't painful. It's water. Universal cleansing agent. We drink it to refresh ourselves. Men, women, and children can, can receive this. The New Covenant has exploded the covenantal blessings. We can't purify our souls. So what Peter is talking about here cannot be talking about saving ourselves. What this has to be talking about is that once we have accepted the faith, once we have trusted, that like that vow said that we will endeavor, we will endeavor to live as becomes Christians. To the best of our ability, we will support the work and worship of the church. Because we don't all have the same abilities. We don't have all the same, we don't have all the same time, same skills, same level of expertise in some things. Think about it. If I wasn't an ordained preacher and I was just a member of this church, would you want me to be a deacon? I think I'd be an okay ruling elder. But I tried to drive that that new lawnmower. About 10 yards. I said, no, 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 no. This is uh, too powerful of a machine for me. Thank you. I know my limitations. It's just, it's just not me. No, couldn't do it. I can help with the poor and things like that, but deacons are in charge of taking care of properties. That's not something you want to entrust to me. It's just it's not in my gift set. It's not my abilities. It's not there. I used to worry about it. I don't worry about it anymore. It's just it's not in the fingertips. I can't even see it. But we must cooperate with the Holy Spirit to the best of our abilities. And this is what he's talking about. And what's key to this is that you purify your souls. You cooperate with your sanctification. You have nothing to do with your justification. But your sanctification, your growth in the Christian life, we have a great part to do, and it's primarily done from sincere love of the brethren. 
growing in the Christian life in many Protestant circles has devolved into a lot of Bible study. And that's very important. You know I'm going to tell you to study your Bibles, to pray. But if you go to Bible studies all day, every day, and you learn all types of stuff, and it just stays in your head and it doesn't get to your heart, and you don't love people any more than you did five or ten years before, what good is it? Nothing. You might as well study law. You might as well study corporate finance if it's not having any effect on the way you treat other people. Peter says this amazing thing. In sincere love of the brethren, we love one another fervently with a pure heart. Why? Passive tense here in verse 23. Having been born again, having been born again. You see, God's in charge of us being born again. You can't bear yourself again. Think of it in the physical world. That was Nicodemus's problem in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, that wise man, the teacher of Israel, said, how can a man be born twice? Can he enter? He says, there's ridiculous things. Can a man enter back into his mother's womb and be born again? Again? Jesus must have chuckled at that. Scratched his head and then he said, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. In other words, he's saying, this is, this is covenantal religion 101, boy. You should know this. You can't save yourself. You can't make yourself anew. God gives us the gift of the new birth. And the gift of the new birth is very important because Jesus says some very important things in John chapter 3. If a man is not born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And by man, he's meaning human beings. If a man is not born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now that's point blank scary, so I'm going to flat out ask you, are you born again? You don't have to have a crisis conversion experience, as some of us have had, where the light hits us and we fall off our bike and we realize, oh, I'm a sinner, I need Christ. Some of us have been granted that testimony. Most of you have not been granted that type of testimony, and you should be happy about that. I often tell the covenant children that as they grow older, their testimonies are to be kind of boring. Well, I went to church. I kind of always believed. I can't really. I had a couple moments of doubt, but I never really didn't believe. Is there something wrong with me? No, that's how it's supposed to be. That's how it's supposed to be. You know more in first grade than you do in eighth. Maybe you'll have a crisis in seventh when a particular subject isn't making much sense to you, but upward and onward. Are you born again? That simply means, do you believe in Christ? Do you believe in Christ, that he's your only hope in this life or the next? That he's your salvation, that he has earned it for you because you can't earn it yourself? That his righteousness has been given to you and your sins and guilt have been given to him. That's what it means. If you believe that, then you are born again. It's not a feeling. It's not a feeling. It's a fact. You can't feel facts. You can, kind of. If you brush up against electricity, as I did the other day, you, you realize that electricity is real. It kind of zaps you just a little bit and you're reminded that you're mortal. <clears throat> If you believe you are born again, if you do not believe you are not born again, 
And if you are not born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So I beg of you, if you do not believe today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It really is just that simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's a passive act. That's why we baptize children. That's why we baptize infants. If I baptize a two-month-old infant, baby has no choice in it, does it? Completely passive. That represents, this form of baptism represents what God does in our salvation. Now, when an adult, someone in their 20s or 30s or teenager, 40s even, 50s, 60s, 70s, when someone like that gets saved, now their baptism is representing what God has done as well, but that person has got to come up and say something about their salvation. But they still have to give glory to God and say that God has saved me. And the water represents the water of the Spirit coming down and washing us. We're passive in our salvation. We've been born again. What? Not from corruptible seed, but through the word of God, which abides forever. And then he goes on to quote, All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Listen to me. You and I will pass from this life. We will. If the Lord tarries, for three or four hundred years, five hundred years, I'm not sure if any of us personally will be remembered. George Washington or Alexander the Great. Maybe, maybe someone will go forth and become famous and be written about in history books, but the vast majority of people are remembered by their family and friends for a few generations, but I don't know much about my relatives from five hundred years ago. I, I, I just I know a couple of their names, but I know nothing about them. They weren't famous. No big deal. Well, what's a comfort in knowing our mortality is that the word of the Lord endures forever. The word that Christ spoke on the day of creation is the same as it is today. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the book of Hebrews tells us. Do you understand? Isn't it frustrating? Those of you who are my age or a little younger, a little older, at how fast technology is changing, it's driving me nuts. You buy something, and you get up to speed learning it, and six months later, you realize, I don't know anything about this device anymore. They're not making it anymore. Our cars have more technology in them, I've been told, than the, the spaceships, for lack of a better term, that cruised up under the Nixon administration. Now, if I was an astronaut, I would find that a little unnerving. That a Yukon or, or a, a Dodge Ram has more computer technology in it than uh, the rust bucket that they sent me into the stratosphere. And I would find that a little unnerving. <clears throat> I'm sure it was cutting edge at the time, but that was only less than 50 years ago. This Bible, the Word of the Lord, it never changes. It never goes out of style. Its message is always the same. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Now you've believed, continue to obey. Oh, you didn't obey? Repent and believe again. 
You realize that's what your Christian life is, a series of repentances and beliefs. I've sinned. I repent. I confess my sin. I believe that you have forgiven me again, Lord. That's the Christian life. Repent and believe. And you know what? God's preachers and prophets, and I'm not a prophet, have been saying the same thing for thousands of years. You know how you can tell a good sermon? If it sounds similar in doctrine to a sermon that was preached 300 years ago, 500 years ago, maybe the language is a little different. I'm not going to come up here and speak in Shakespearean dialect, but the message is basically the same. This is what God has said. Do you believe it? No. Why? This is what God has said. Do you believe it? Yes. Fantastic. Now go forth and obey him. That's basically what every sermon is about. Every single one. You don't have to remember all of them. Do you remember what you ate three weeks ago? As an average meal. I'm not talking about going out to a special dinner or anything like that. And if you had fish sticks three weeks ago, you might not, you know, maybe the children remember fish sticks and macaroni and cheese, but if you had fish sticks three weeks ago, it's probably not going to be jumping out in your mind. It's just ordinary food. A salad, they're tasty, but they're nothing, nothing extraordinary. They, they satisfy you, and then you move on. We can bank on God's word because it is true and it endures forever. It endures forever because God endures forever, because God exists outside of forever. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's unchangeable. We change. The people in our lives change. Our health changes. Our finances change. Administrations come and go. In a hundred years, none of us will be here in this building. Another generation will be in charge. And how are we now, those of us who are leaders in the church... How are we to make sure that that investment is passed down through the word of the Lord? Not through marketing, not through strategy, through the word of the Lord. We need to teach the next generation the word of the Lord. And we need to make sure that that word is watered and that enough spiritual sunshine is blasted upon it so that it has the conditions for growth. The Holy Spirit brings the growth. We are in charge of creating the conditions for that growth. So that the next generation can carry on. Because our moment in history is passing rather quickly. How fast did June go by? Don't get depressed, kids. You, know, you still have, you know, July and August are still on the calendar. But the years just motor by. They just motor by. And too many of us are so wrapped up in the moment that we can't realize, oh, there's another generation that needs to be nurtured and fed the word of the Lord so that when we're gone, they know what they're doing. And the goal should be that they know more than we do and that they're more faithful than we do so that when we're in our old age and we're looking at them, we are astounded at what God is doing through them. That should be the goal of every church, irrespective of denomination. That the next generation is stronger, that the next generation is wiser, the next generation is more ready for the battle with the evil one. And that battle can only be won by the sword of the Spirit, the word of the Lord. This is the word which was, by the gospel, was preached to you. In our day and age, the preaching of the word is devalued for many reasons. 
and a lot of other things are put in its place. When we put something in place of the simple preaching of the word, we mess with God's plan. We mess with his ordered things. Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. People do not get saved from social activities. Social activities are good. Fellowship activities are important, but they are a subset of the word. If we have all the grand fellowship slash social occasions we can muster and nobody ever talks about the Lord, it's not really a fellowship gathering. It's a business meeting. It's a rotary club. I don't know exactly what the rotary club does, but it's not a church. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we're to lay aside all of this evil, maliciousness. And he encourages us as newborn babes to desire the pure milk of the word. That's a, a vivid image. An infant desires the mother's milk. And that's the attitude that we should have towards our Bibles if we have tasted that the Lord indeed is gracious. And now let me just ask you this. Do you, do you appreciate this Bible? This is the word of God. This is it. People have been reading the same book for thousands of years. It's actually a library of books. Do you desire it like milk? We have to admit that our thinking grows cloudy and dusty sometimes. And I think the reason why our thinking sometimes grows dusty is because our Bibles have dust on them. A little bit of Bible study each day is better than a gigantic swab once a month. Keep telling you, 5, 10, 15 minutes a day, steadily, over 5, 10 years, it will add up like a accumulated interest. A little bit a day. I'm not going to tell you it will keep the doctor away, but it will help keep sin from knocking on your door too loudly. Brothers and sisters, we have been given the gift of the Word of God. Let us read it, let us pray over it, and let us ask God to engraft it into the very marrow of our being so that our lives are changed. But if we don't open it up, that prayer won't be answered. Let's pray. Almighty God, we ask you for the desire to desire your Word, your pure milk of the Word, as if we were newborn babes. Amen.